Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The hills were alive with wildflowers and I was as wild, even wilder than they. Or at least I could run. They just died in the sun and I refused to just wither in place. Just a wild mountain rose needing so I ran, fearing not where I go oh, oh. When a flower grows wild It can always survive Wildflowers don't care where they grow All right, this is exciting. Um, I mean, her, yeah, exactly. Wait, we did that in person. I, th- I think her microphone is not on. One thing oh. we forgot to do is actual do an actual <laughs> mic check. Now I think her microphone might be I'll on. I'll say now. it again. Say it you again. Just, you just played one of my favorite songs well, without even knowing. Oh, no, no. Everything is intentional. You we knew that. You were talking to a woman whose dog is named Jolene. Yeah, no. We knew that. We knew you these knew things. You knew that. We, no, we actually did. I mean, uh, you've been heavily researched by Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer. And I'm up. not one of those Johnny-come-latelys about Dolly Parton. I was a Dolly Parton fan in right. 1972. It might just be a good idea to tell you who I'm talking to right now, who's talking back to me, and that would be Joyce Maynard. Uh, She is here with me. So I have to say, I I said this as you walked in the studio, but I really am one of these people who feel (laughs) as though I know Joyce Maynard. Now, the reason that I feel this way uh, is, and we'll tell you a little bit more about why she's here and all that kind of stuff. So I arrived on the Yale campus uh, in 1972 as a highly uninteresting Yale freshman, Uh, but something had already happened, and it was called Joyce Maynard. But you had written this essay, uh, this really kind of prodigious essay for your age, um, called it An 18-Year-Old Looks Back on Life. And it had caused this- The irony totally escaped me of the title that they gave. Some some New York Times Sunday Magazine editor- Called it that. Gave yeah. you that, but but it's not a totally wrong title either. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it had caused it would, was kind of an event. Like as I was coming to Yale, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree if somebody said, "Remember when your mother or father said, well, maybe you'll meet that Joyce Maynard,' because you were kind of that Joyce Maynard." Well, we already. have to remember this was pre-internet days, right. Colin. There weren't a lot of media sources, right. so to be on the cover of the New York Times Magazine section, in, as I was in the spring of. 1982, uh, 72, 72. Uh, 46 years ago, uh, was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. And there's something about that essay, and I want to come back to it, I, I think that, that seized people's imagination. It was not just one person talking. It really did feel not like a whole generation talking, but a large segment of a whole generation talking about something that the older people reading it hadn't quite understood. Um, we should also say that... Um, well, I, I also want to say that I've read a lot of your books since then. I'm pretty sure I reviewed one of your books uh, and um, have always been incredibly impressed by the way that you write. I think you write a very strong sentence, you know. Uh, if you had my mother, you would too. Yeah, probably. You, you probably um, do write a strong sentence too. When I arrived at Yale in 1972, you took that opportunity to leave immediately. <laughs> Uh, I think we probably overlapped by a day. A day, or, yeah, a day. We had one did, glorious I did, day. <laughs> I came back to Yale for one for for one day and then left. Yeah. And and I, it is a, a story uh, known by many, but I'll briefly say that after that 
article appeared in the New York Times. I received, literally, there were two enormous sacks of mail delivered to my Yale dormitory room with every conceivable kind of offer and opportunity that a girl from a small town in New Hampshire whose mother had groomed her to, you know, to write and to get to the big city dreamed of, um, including my favorite one, which was an audition for The Exorcist. Right. Um, and lots of, you know, editors and uh, TV producers and radio people um, and magazine opportunities. And in among those letters was one very different one, saying, the author saying, I really like that piece of writing. I think you're a real writer, and I want to uh, issue, this was ironic, words of caution, you will be exploited, and I urge you to be careful. And went on to say many other things that resonated in a very deep way with me. And the, the, the author of the letter, when I got to the bottom of the page, and already I felt this person knows me as nobody does, um, the author of the letter was J.D. Salinger. We embarked on a correspondence. I, the whole rest of my life sort of disappeared, and I lived for the hour of the day when the mail was delivered to the Yale Post Office, and that summer I went to meet him, really believing it, I was an extremely young 18-year-old girl, that I was meeting my mentor, my spiritual guide, my teacher and friend. Um, but it, the relationship um, became something very different, as you could imagine. He was 53 at the time. I moved in with Salinger, still intending to come back to Yale, and I and maintain these two lives, which were completely not compatible. And I lasted one day, and then mm. he came back and said, "Why don't you just come home?" And I did. I have your blue Schwinn bicycle if you want it. So, um, <laughs> I abandoned my here. bicycle. Yeah. I have I, a new used. I bike. used it, it for four years here. It was and a I should bike. say, because we're speaking to a Connecticut uh, audience, that I'm back. Yes, yeah, so I'm well, back I, at well, school. I was, I was trying to get there. Actually, <laughs> you're you're back. I was teaching at Yale this spring, and I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like. To have Joyce Maynard in my seminar, that would have been kind of well, it would have been great in a lot of ways. What but, were you uh, teaching? I was teaching a course about the state of 21st century political journalism. Ooh, so, as you can like imagine, yeah. every day, every week, the syllabus had to change to reflect yes. you know, new eruptions. Yeah. Uh, which is something that is part of the book, The Best of Us. But once again, to circle back to 72, you wrote that essay, and it was this fusion of politics, the politics of the moment, uh, Nixon versus McGovern. The, uh, the war, uh, of course, was going on. The war was going My on. My generation, yeah. this is a difference between you and me that separates <laughs> one year, um, was, those were the last young men to uh, to participate in the draft. Right. They, got, uh, they were part of the lottery. I was the first. And that was a significant part yeah. of who my generation were. But what you were doing was fusing a lot of elements that were part of the unfolding history of the moment with the unfolding popular culture of the moment with the unfolding life you personally, Joyce Maynard, yes. were living at that mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. And it's basically something that you've done for the ensuing 40... 47 six, years. Yeah, yeah 40... I mean, I mean, I was actually doing it before, yeah. just not in the New York Times. Um, and I, I should say that I, I recognize now it was I spoke for a particular segment of my generation. Actually, mm -hmm. I don't attempt to speak for anybody but me anymore. That's mm -hmm. one of the many things that's changed between my 18-year-old self and my 64-year-old self. But um, I, I was a middle-class white person, mm -hmm. um, not from a particularly affluent background, but but. I spoke about, you know, the, the experience of the Kennedy assassination and seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and all of those things. And there were some things, actually, that I did not speak about. Mm -hmm. And that, that changed over the years, too. I did not. I came from an alcoholic family, and mm -hmm. you would not find that mentioned in my early writing. So 
now you're back on the Yale campus. You're a Yale undergraduate again, which I can't Sophomore quite year. Wrap, I can't wrap my mind around this. Yeah. But um, and uh, history is unfolding at a very rapid pace once again. You're yes. out in the hall finding out some new Michael Avenatti news. Um, you're on the Yale campus as the Yale campus is convulsed. I mean, more than most campuses because so much of this Brett Kavanaugh story takes place here. Well, I've got to tell you, okay. not the way you think from the newspaper. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, obviously I haven't done, um, you know, serious journalistic research here, mm-hmm. but just um, uh, anecdotally, I think the Yale Law School is galvanized around this issue. Mm-hmm. I'm an undergraduate, mm-hmm. and every class that I have gone into for the last several days, I am personally galvanized. Mm-hmm. I ask my fellow students, what do you think about Kavanaugh? They, it has barely registered. Mm-hmm. I don't think less of them for it. They're young, yeah. and they're very consumed with their studies and their lives, and sadly cynical. What I hear from them is, oh, well, you know it's going to happen. The, these these people will speak up, and then they'll they'll just vote him in anyway, which is not at all where I, how I operate or what I believe. I, I still actually do believe we can make a change as citizens. Right. But, but, um, well, they are 18-year-olds looking back on life from yeah, their perspective. And, yes, and, and looking very, in a very small world yeah. right now, which is understandable. My experience teaching them this past spring with a lot of the – it wasn't Brett Kavanaugh, but it was everything else that has been happening – was that they were calmer about it uh, and a little bit more reasonable and more prepared to – I mean, you read a lot about how kind of hashtag woke this generation is and college campuses are. I thought that my, my students were very open-minded. They were kind of in- interested in hearing a lot of different viewpoints. Yes, I see that too. Yeah. I see that too. Impressed me very much. Well, you know, I mean, you've written a lot over the years about the relations between men and women. Uh, That's my territory. (laughs) That's your territory. So I don't know. I mean, you must be. Parents and children come in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's what happens when men and women get together. Right. This whole time must be causing, I mean, putting you in a state of hypervigilance or something as you watch this this thing happen. uh, Yes, it is. Although I am also pretty consumed by my studies. I mean, I'm just working really hard. Hard. I've yeah. worked pretty hard all my life, but it's a different kind of work. Right. Um, and I should say, I am most certainly not an English major. Um, but uh, you're an art major, right? I at this point, I haven't had you, to declare a major, yeah, but right. I'm I'm taking two studio art classes yeah. and and French and playwriting, and ah, I'm just exploding with mm. all the things that I haven't gotten to do for the last forty six years. <laughs> so yeah, I. I have lots of plans. Well, I mean, just in a nutshell, because people would be interested to know what Joyce Maynard is thinking about all this stuff. As you're watching, I mean, I'm sure you'll be going to class tomorrow when the hearings are taking place. I would imagine you on a DVR or something like Somehow or other, you're going to watch these uh, hearings. DVR tomorrow. would be too tech for yeah, right. me, Colin, but but I will figure out a way yeah. to hear it for sure. Well, I don't know. What, are, what are you thinking about the, right a, now? How is, a, how is this landing with you, this story? Well, I, um, you know, I... I I won't pretend that I haven't formed some, I mean, I want to hear the testimony, but I also, um, when I hear the kinds of dismissals that are Mm -hmm. made of the women's um, testimony, I, uh, you know, I, I, I bring to it a lifetime of experience of having my own Mm -hmm. experience dismissed and, and my own stories um, of personal uh, experience um, of a, of a, of a different but not completely unrelated sort, uh, silenced um, and condemned. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I know enough to know already. I, I don't want this man to be on, on my Supreme Court. Um, and I, 
the the kinds of objections that are or questions that are raised about the testimony strike me as so singularly lacking in understanding of the way women work mm-hmm. and the way trauma works and I know some things about trauma actually mm-hmm. um, you know the the preposterous notion that a 15 year old girl who experiences something like what um, what Kavanaugh's first accuser um, alleges would naturally tell her parents and go to the authorities and that were they to do that, the authorities would naturally take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Just that. Um, The notion that there's something odd about not remembering exactly where the house was or what the day was, that's not the way a trauma memory uh, lands with us and Mm -hmm. sits with us and in no way does it suggest that it didn't happen because we don't know those things. Um, what, a, what a woman does know is the memory of the feeling of a hand over her mouth and the sense, I might die. Mm-hmm. Not because this person's trying to kill me, just because he's, he's 17 years old and he doesn't know that, you know, and, and he's out of control. He's drunk. Mm-hmm. He's out of control. Um, we could talk some more about this, but I want to bring it back to you for just a little bit, too, because I think you're alluding to something that, that I've found interesting, which is it's hard to think of a writer who has taken more slings and arrows and body blows than you. I mean, people have just kicked you around really hard over the years. Yeah. And, you know, like, I have a little, like, greatest hits of things said about me. Right. Uh, I, I, by the way, I, I regard having been sling- dissed by uh, Maureen Dowd as something you should be proud of. Yeah, Maureen uh, Dowd, for, for, for those who don't know, and I wouldn't expect everybody to be tracking me for the last many years, um, Maureen Dowd, um, when I published my book At Home in the World, the story after 25 years of silence uh, that I decided, uh, that I gave myself permission to tell of leaving Yale to be with Salinger and what happened and how Salinger dismissed me from his life in a way that had huge implications for me. Um, When I published that book um, 20 years ago, this month actually, um, Maureen Dowd called me a predator. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that remark was echoed by countless the term leech woman. Leech too. woman, yeah. Not to revisit old uh, Sucking off of, you know, great men, you know, uh, making my name and career off of the, you know, the scraps of my association with somebody truly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't say that that was just 20 years ago. A yeah. year ago, a writer for The Atlantic called me the queen of oversharing. Um, so, you know, I can either, like, curl up in a ball and go home or or question, you know, what's going on with them that speaking the truth should be viewed as oversharing? And, um, and isn't it interesting that it's never men who, right. uh, to whom those uh, uh, labels apply? Right. Nausgaard is on, what, volume six of yes. his oversharing. <laughs> Uh, when and the people are running out of patience with him in a different way, but it's also there's something uh, there's a way in which I mean I, I should say I have really always enjoyed your work and and I, I've loved the novels uh, I like like this memoir although it's a very very difficult to, thing to go through for reasons that we'll talk about but um, um, you know you do I don't know why people get so I mean they don't say that about Annie Dillard right I mean how come you People are always no, and Annie Dillard had her things to say about me too. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. The list is long, Um, because I I really didn't cut it with the literary, um, uh, the the classy literary world either. Um, 
I don't know. What was the question again? Well, I, I, so I just wonder. I mean, I, I've actually read <laughs> why essays. Do they, why don't they like me? I, yeah, I don't I've, know. I've, I've I read essays that were titled, why, why Are People So Mean to, to Joyce Maynard? I mean, there are, that's a I whole think, other okay. area. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is, I mean, I've, I've done a few different outrageous things over the years. Mm. And, you know, maybe I don't want to recite them all, but, you know, it's okay. I'm sort of accustomed to it. Um, but part of the, the whole Salinger thing, I think... Uh, is is unique because the particular the the important man um, about whom I told a not very flattering story was the one who had influenced them when they were so young. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, so many readers of Salinger formed their passionate attachment when they were 14, 15 years old. And they were, uh, he was their lifeline. And so when I told the story that I did, which, you know, I really, I didn't, actually I didn't use a single judgmental term about him. I just mm. told what happened to me. Let 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 people make their own conclusions. I, I I didn't feel I needed to make them for them, for anyone. Um, but I was attacking some very primal. It was like I was attacking their religion. Right. And I did kind of understand that because there was a time when he was my religion. Well, I, let's put Salinger in a parking garage for a second okay. here. Because, I mean, there, there's another thing that you've done just generally. And you're certainly, as we've just noticed, you're not the first writer to do it. and You won't be the last. But you have painted on canvases an awful lot with the material of your own life, and you haven't held back at all. Uh, and, 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 and look, I'm going to be an art major now. I'll try to <laughs> <laughs> it's about time I did it with paint. Right. Maybe I won't get into as much trouble. <laughs> I mean, I, I wrote for a lot of the same women's magazines that you've written for, but I didn't get anywhere near as much trouble. I yeah. wrote about breasts for yeah. Cosmopolitan. Oh, you, well, then you, know. you were brave and courageous. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, yeah. I was. And, yeah, Whereas and you I was, were, you I was vaginal was yeah. the word. That you were vaginal? About. Yes, yes, that was one of the words. And in fact, a w- it was a woman writer who said this. This was a woman. That would seem to be a standard operating feature. But well, anyway, go ahead. you know, yeah. um, as a writer, that's not a good thing to be, evidently. Okay. But it was one of the many dismissals of me was made by a woman, incidentally, in the New York Times, who said, oh, she writes for women's magazines. Mm-hmm. A woman yeah. suggesting that that's a lesser thing to do. I, um, no, it's how there's you get, a lot of it's how you get paid. self-hatred. Wait, and, you know, a big part of my story has been that I've been a working writer. Yeah. I was a single parent. I supported my children by writing. I didn't have teaching jobs, mm-hmm. fellowships. I was, I was a daily writer. I was the furthest thing from Salinger, sitting on a mountain collecting royalty checks. I, um, and that there were lots of times when I, you know, I struggled uh, greatly for that and, and wished it were other, but it actually, it taught me some very useful lessons about mm. um, not having a huge ego about it. This was my job. Like, you know, a carpenter goes out and builds houses. I go out and tell stories. Right. I've done it now for scary number, 50 years. Mm. I was actually publishing my work since I was 14. Uh, Salinger did not make my career. No. And so... You know, I think uh, other writers, critics, whatever, you know, literati, intelligentsia, been often very, very tough on you. But there's nobody who's as tough on Joyce Maynard as Joyce Maynard. Uh, your husband says that to you in this book. He says you're very hard on yourself. Uh, I feel that way, too. I feel even reading this particular book, The Best of Us, I'm like reading stuff going, ah, Joyce, you didn't even really have to tell people. <laughs> I feel, you know what it you know? is, um, if... If I am going to scrutinize the rest of the world as mm. I do, I need to apply it to myself as well. And certainly, if I'm going to write a book, you know, to jump ahead to the best of us for a minute, um, about 
I never think of this as a cancer book, and I. Um, but certainly, you know, a big piece of the story is the 19 months that I, uh, I ex- walked the path of a terminal cancer with, with my the husband of my 50s. Um, there's no way that I can tell that story without including the parts that were not the Florence Nightingale moments, mm-hmm. the moments of, you know, frustration and impatience. They were not the dominant experience. I'm, I call the book The Best of Us because I think it was the best of me that came out during that time. But but I, thinking of the the, the woman or man at home taking care of somebody who, who is similarly desperately ill, um, I wanted that person to know that I, as I always do, that they're not the only person who who experiences these these moments of of impatience and frustration. That you know, a flawed person basically, and and that comes from a very early formative experience. I said earlier, I grew up in an alcoholic family, of not simply growing up with a father who got drunk every night, but growing up in, growing up in a family in which that was never discussed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have this kind of pathological need to talk about what happened. Right. And I'll be, nobody tells stories on me uh, because I've already told them about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, almost every one of the things that people have criticized me for <laughs> over the years, they know because I wrote it. <laughs> Right. And, and and this book is no exception there. And so uh, uh, we're going to take a break in just a second. But and this this show is moving past me very fast. Somehow. <laughs> Can you come back tomorrow? Um, so um, there, j- just to circle back to what we we're talking about before and, and this particular moment in American history and the yes. things that are being discussed. Yeah. So um, I was listening to The Daily uh, the other day, the podcast from The New York Times. Uh, and Kate, Caitlin Flanagan was on uh, telling a story that she'd also written in The Atlantic. And it was about a, a boy in her past who had tried to rape her or at least had done everything that people do when they're trying to rape you. Caitlin uh, Flanagan instantly is the one who called me the queen of oversharing. Oh. Just so we, you know, old <laughs> oh, no. friends. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm scared to bring up anybody. No, 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 but, it's uh, okay. No, okay. So anyway, I was at the end of her story, what she says is that this boy, a few years later, uh, maybe grown a little bit more into more of a man, tracked her down uh, at a retail job she had uh, and showed up and weeping apologized uh, mm. and talked about you know, how terrible he felt about what he had done. And it was clear to her that this had stayed with him for a really long time and Mm. preyed on him for a very long time. And and she said it made a big difference in how and where she was. And I do think that that's, you know, when I read a book like The Best of Us, when I read some of the rather confessional work that you've done, it does seem that, first of all, you probably have the capacity to make things right with yourself by doing by saying some of that, but also right with the world. You know, the, the, if there are people that you may feel you have wronged in various ways, or at least haven't done everything yep. that you need to do for, and you know, there's some pretty obvious examples of that. I'm there's a, big, a way that you can. Yeah. I'm a big believer in the apology. I was as yeah. a parent. You know, it yeah. was one of the the lessons. You know, it doesn't wipe it all out. But boy, you know, I would say, you know, just those. What are those words? I'm sorry. Go a long way. Imagine for a moment if Bill Cosby a couple of days ago, mm. had stood up and said, I did terrible things. I mean, I, I mean it, it wouldn't wipe it out, for sure, and mm. he should still be incarcerated. But how differently yeah. we would be experiencing that incarceration right now and, and that story. 
All right, we're going to take a break. I should say we're in New Haven. I don't know if I said that. I, I, I implied it. Uh, but we're in New Haven at our, at our Gateway Studios. Joyce Maynard is here because she's a sophomore at Yale, uh, inexplicably. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. I'm through with doubt. There's nothing left for me to figure out. I've paid a price. All right, I'm here uh, at our Gateway Community College Studios with Joyce Maynard, author of more than 15 books, including two that you perhaps saw as movies, Labor Day and To Die For, uh, and uh, two memoirs, At Home in the World and now The Best of Us. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about The Best of Us. So you said before it's not a cancer book. Uh, I'm totally with you on that. Uh, But it is the story of you finding great love rather late in the game after yeah. having a lot of bad bounces, as they say in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I don't know. T- if it's not a cancer book, which I agree it isn't, tell me what you think well, it is. Well, I, I think it's a love story. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's really a book about marriage, mm-hmm. um, a, um, an institution that I don't think I understood, although I had been married before yeah. when I was young to the father of my three children. Um, uh, and I then was knocking around as a single person for a very long time, uh, almost 25 years before I met Jim. Um, in my late 50s, I was 57. Um, sounds young now. But, <laughs> um, met him on Match.com. Mm-hmm. I always say that because I want to encourage people. Um, no shame there. Um, and that's coming from the woman who's been labeled shameless, another mm-hmm. thing that they say about me. Um, so I met Jim and... Um, I didn't really, at the point that I met Jim, although I'm a total pushover for romance and was always looking for my, my true love, my partner, I wasn't really a fan of marriage at mm. that point. And uh, it was Jim who, who really wanted to get married. And so I went along with him, I think, because I thought, well, this will be a really great party and I can have a nice dress and it'll be fun. Um, but I do not name the date of my wedding, which was just five years ago mm. this summer, kind of extraordinary fact for me, um, as the moment that I got married. Mm. I, that happened really, I, I understood what it meant to be married um, when 15 months later, when we got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And, this, and the book, although it, it follows, it follows m- us before then, um, this sort of literal honeymoon period, but uh, the, the easy romantic period. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, the book really tracks the period in which um, I understood what it was to be a partner. Mm-hmm. I knew what it was to be a parent, that's for sure. That, that sacrifice for one's children was a concept I got long ago. Um, but I was fiercely independent. Um, nothing was going to keep me away from my work. And um, my initial vision of my marriage to Jim, as much as I loved him, was that I would basically carry on with my life. I gave him a little corner of the closet. I gave him a box, first mm-hmm. of all, for his clothes, and then a corner of the closet. But that was really metaphoric for how I was. 
I was going off here, there, doing my things, and just getting to be picked up at the airport by this really wonderful man um, who would then drop me off at the airport for my next adventure. There's a way in which, and not to keep using that old essay as a Rosetta Stone, uh, but there's a way in which this is also a story of the culture that people weave into their lives, that, that love and marriage don't happen in a vacuum. They happen against the backdrop of politics and against the backdrop of the things that please them from the world. So yeah. uh, whether it's Picasso or a Bob Dylan concert, I, I don't. could you say a little bit more about that? I, I think well, you're, you're unusual as a writer in the sense that you kind of insist on the way that art and culture informs any given moment. Well, this story is full of um, things that I that I care a lot about. Mm-hmm. Music is high on the list, as it was for Jim. We were very different people, but but um, we we shared a love of passion for music, and we we heard a lot of music during our four and a half years together. One of the stories that I tell in the book uh, is about. Um, going to see Bob Dylan perform, as it turned out, five days at an outdoor arena five days before Jim died. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jim could barely walk. He was on hospice at that point. Um, and there was a distinct possibility that he might have died at that concert. But I, I tell that story. Um, and I have no regret about that, mm-hmm. I, although there were certainly people you know, who might judge me harshly for it. Look what she did. She took her dying husband to see Bob Dylan. Um, uh, there's no very good place to be when you're dying, actually, except mm. with the person who loves you more than anybody else on the face mm. of the earth. Um, food is in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, b- back to the concert for a second. Do you want to mention the nurses at that concert? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, so uh, we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there is a wonderful little group, mm. big group in the mm. Bay Area called Rock Medicine, established originally by Bill Graham, the rock entrepreneur, um, back in the 60s. Um, Uh, to make sure that there's medical attention at every single rock concert Mm -hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area. And originally, this was the idea was there were a lot of people having bad LSD trips in Mm -hmm. the 60s. Now those same people are still maybe at some of the same concerts, depending on who the artist is, but they're not having bad LSD trips anymore. They're, you know, they're having uh, seizures and, you know, Parkinson's or, you know, whatever sort of older people things, arthritic issues. Um, so when we went to this concert, and it was Jim's insistence that we go. I, could, I couldn't imagine that we could make it to this concert. Uh, but when we went, and he dressed very carefully, um, it turned out the last time he ever went out into the world to go to the, the Greek theater in Berkeley, um, he he suddenly passed out. He keeled over. And the concert hadn't even started and I brought him to the rock medicine tent where he, he did seem as if maybe he would not regain consciousness. Um, I asked for a banana. It was about the only thing you could give him at that mm-hmm. point. Um, but he did rally for, he heard Maple, Mavis Staples briefly and he said, that's not Bob Dylan. And then he kind of went under again and then he rallied for Dylan and, and insisted on staying for the entire show. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, barely spoke, although he stood up one time when Dylan sang Tangled Up Blue. Um, and and I tell this story of going back out to the car, the rock medicine nurses at our side pushing his wheelchair. And he looks at me and says, what were some of the last words he ever spoke to me? Mm. Did you have a good time, baby? Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we tell these stories, um, and we tell a story like that, and yes, some people are going to read that story and go, wow, she brought him to that concert. He was right. so sick and blah, blah, blah. But I think when we're dealing with end-of-life issues, 
um, first of all, we wind up doing things that wouldn't have been in our playbook, and things make sense to us in a very different way yeah. than they might have made yeah. to somebody who wasn't living our reality at that moment. There's a story that I, I've given a couple of speeches recently about end-of-life decisions, and <clears throat> one of the things I talk about in the speech, I always say it's usually a medical conference or something, and I say, I'm going to tell you this story, and you're going to be really annoyed that you booked me at all. Um, uh. <laughs> and, and and I talk about how I violated my mother's living will, um, uh. and because and I explain the whole thing, you know, about and then I half the audience thinks, oh yeah, no, that's what he should have done. And Are you not going to tell what half, you did? Well, I mean, it, basically, I mean, the short version of it was that my mother's living will said that all possible heroic measures. At one point, this nurse came to me, this wonderful, wonderful nurse came to me and said, you know, I think your mother should be in hospice. hospice. I think she should be totally on palliative care. She's suffering so much and blah, blah, blah. And I said to her, you know, that's the only problem is I have a living will that says I have to kill you if that would help. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> like I should do anything. <laughs> Uh, help keep my mother alive. But I ultimately made a decision that when my mother was suffering so much and she yeah. couldn't be helped, and yeah. she was maybe suffering in a way that she couldn't have anticipated. And I just right. made a different set of decisions. And I'm okay with them. Yes. But when you tell them to people, just the way you tell some of yeah. the stories in this book, people, some people are going to go, what? And I'm not, my goal as a writer, Colin, is not to have people sort of say, oh, that's just like me. It's right. okay if I, uh, I think one of my uh, functions over the years has been to go out and do things that other people wouldn't do, mm. and maybe they're very right to not, mm-hmm. and then report back on how it went. And yeah. Sometimes it went badly. I'm I'm ready to be a sort of lightning rod for response in whatever form. I, You mentioned the playbook. I've, I've said for many years, the day they handed out the rule book of life, I, I was absent. <laughs> I don't know the rules. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure them out. I briefly thought I'd learn them from watching television in the 60s, you know. I... So, yeah, I'd never, I'd never taken care of a person th- that was dying before. Well, I had my mother, but in a different sort of way. Um, and there, is, there, there are no rules in, in certain moments except to, to listen to who that person is and, and, or watch them if they can't speak and, and, and um, bring your knowledge and love to the table. It's a good place for us to pause, I think. Uh, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. We'll have our final segment of this conversation, which is flying by. Uh, I've been waiting for 46 years to talk to <laughs> Joyce Maynard, and it's almost over. And anyway, uh, we'll uh, come back after this. After miles on the highway, I came in from the rain. And you built us a fire, dear. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Nicole Kidman. And now, back to Colin. I should quickly say that the Joyce Maynard, the song that we played to end the previous segment, is a song, one of the things, one of the uh, tropes that runs through this uh, book, The Best of Us, is the notion of Jim, your husband, as your guard dog, the guy who watches as you walk down to go into the lake and then doesn't take his eyes off you until you get back to the shore. He's, he's sort of that guy in, in your life. So you wrote... And I never had somebody like that. Yeah. You wrote that song about him. It's called Guard Dog. I... 
Um, one of the things that happened, so much happened after Jim died, but one was that I just decided I was going to really, um, I was pretty into living my life before, but I was going to really do all the things I wanted to do and and not um, waste any time about it. And one of the things I always wanted to do was write songs. So I attended a songwriting workshop with mm. Steve Earle, and that's my first song that I wrote. And it's actually, if people want to hear it, or just sort of get a little background to the best of us, I created a three-minute video that's on YouTube. You can just uh, uh, put in my name, Joyce Maynard, and the best of us, and you will see this little video accompanied by that song, my song, Guard Dog, yep. not sung by me. It's sung by Amy Rigby. We uh, we can link to that, too. There'll be a whole show page Terrific. of this at wnpr.org backslash. You will oh. hear me singing on this video. You'll hear me singing a John Prine song, not very well. Well, of course, uh, you know, John Prine has a particular way of singing. That. It's, it's not like that he, he's some kind of, you know, coloratura soprano you're not going to be able to, to match up with. But um, anyway, wnpr.org slash Colin. You can find all of our shows. You can find this show. You can listen, re-listen to the whole show. Every and, day. And every day. And then we'll, Get all we'll, the fine points. We'll put links to all kinds of stuff uh, having to do uh, with Joyce Maynard in there. My pie video, perhaps? Uh, you know I teach pie. Right. Yeah. yeah. The sky is the limit. Uh, we can do a lot of different things. So... Um, Boy, this is really going fast. Mm-hmm. So, um, you and I—we are you're apart in age. We're aging now. We're and, and this yes. book is uh, about one man's uh, mortality, but it's sort of about all of our mortalities. This yes. summer, I uh, had a melanoma removed from the side of my head, which was, I was really not, <laughs> not really planning on having that happen this summer. And it, it just is a reminder that you're not the 18-year-old looking yeah. back on life anymore. No. So, um, maybe talk a little bit about that. How does it feel to be the age you are right now? I'm. I. I I like this age. Yeah. I like this age, and I, I, um, I could wish that I had better knees. Yeah. But I basically, I, I'm not. I, I am in possession of all the wisdom that that comes from being this age, and there's no quick route about it. I see it every day in my classes at Yale. These kids are so smart, mm-hmm. but there's and they've read maybe much more than I have. They, but they don't have this age. So uh, what I try to do is. Um, grow. It's part of why I went. You asked. You said it was sort of inexplicable that I'd gone back to college. One of the ways that I'm dealing with growing older is to be still growing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to stop, and I want to learn new things. I, I hope I live a few decades more. But um, however long I live, even if these are my last years, spending them learning new things seems like a pretty good idea to me. I. It's curious how much in denial, I think, we as a culture are about death. Not mm-hmm. all cultures, certainly yep. not, you know, I don't see this in, in you know, Central America where I spend a lot of time. Um, I, I went on a pretty major book tour for the best of us last mm-hmm. year. And I, wherever I went, every night there would be one person who, <laughs> this might be really bad salesmanship mm-hmm. for my book, who would get up and leave. Yeah. And I never took it personally. Mm-hmm. I did not think I was doing a bad job. I thought no. I was doing a good job, but they just couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And I think my response to difficult things, as anybody would know from who's just even been listening for the last 45 minutes, is to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, 
there are things in this book that I really identified with, including, although I've obviously had a much more minor and at least for now manageable experience than what you and Jim had. This but was your mother. Uh, well, my mother. Also, I had the melanoma. Right. So it was like, right. Um But um, one of the things that I did, and it was so funny to read it. Well, funny is the wrong word, but it was uh, familiar to read it in, in your book. Uh, there's a thing where I think you say that you never call it Jim's tumor. You call it the, the, the tumor. The, the tumor. Because yes. it's not yeah. Jim's tumor. Nope. Yeah. I was very, right. very careful about that. I'm a language person. Yeah. I kept thinking prior to the removal of this thing, I kept thinking, I don't have cancer. That thing has cancer. Just yeah. get it off the side of yes. my head. Yeah. <laughs> and I you. won't have yeah. cancer and anymore. And look, you're looking hale and hearty. Right. Yeah. A little tired, but yeah. uh, but hale and hearty. So, yeah, I, I also wondered, you know, maybe even back to the songwriting thing. I, I you know, watching the death of someone that you love and being confronted with something that we all know from almost the time we're born, which is that life is finite. Um, is that part of maybe wanting to take a songwriting course or something? Absolutely. I, mean, I find myself thinking, yeah. anything I'm, I want to do, I better yeah, do it right now. I'm not like jumping out of planes right. and bungee jumping, but but I am. I'm. Um, I want to uh, celebrate all the parts of you know my interests that I haven't necessarily mm. been able to nurture up to now. And I'm keenly aware of what Jim didn't get to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I am now older than he ever got to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 64 when he died. So I'm just a few months older than he ever got to be. Um, so yeah, I I'm I really love being alive. Right. I, and I'm not, discomfort is not the worst thing I can imagine. Uh, not feeling is the worst thing I can imagine. So as long as I'm having experiences, all is not lost. I, in reading this book also, I thought of, um, and I hope to God neither one of these people ever said anything bad about you, uh, but I thought of another, I'm pretty sure, New Hampshire couple, Donald Hall and, yes. and Jane Kenyon. Yeah. And his poems. Oh, gosh. No, his, I, love, I it, love both of their yeah, poems. His poems about her death, too, yes. remind me a lot of the way that, I mean. I read those books as, uh, yeah. all through. Yeah. And and there there is an unsparingness to each of each of these accounts yours and uh and Donald Hall's uh, about the pain uh, that they see in the other person. But I mean, I think that's pretty consistent with how you've written too. You you as we, as we've been saying straight along here, you you're not afraid of details, I guess. No. Uh, no. I'm not a squeamish person. Yeah. Um did, it, did, did you struggle at all? This is, you know, you've written very intimately all through your career. You're writing about the person that you loved about as much as you can love a human being. There's, you know, whenever you write about anybody, you're kind of turning them into prose. You're putting them on a page. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Was, was that a fear that you had that somehow or other he was going to wind up in your book and maybe less real in real life? No, I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. I knew I could do it. I, it was, it was, um, and incidentally, you know, if, if all I did was write a tribute to Jim, that's very nice for yeah. me and for the people who love Jim, but it's no reason to read this book. But I did, I did, I have to say, I started writing this book the night Jim died. He died mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and I lay there for about an hour and then I got up and I started to write. And there was a, a great comfort for me in bringing him to life on the page. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want it to end. I was I was still, he was around while I was writing that book. Um, okay, we have just a few minutes left. I'm going to give you a choice of two topics. Okay. Spirituality or Stephen Colbert? Oh, Stephen Colbert. <laughs> okay. Ste- that wasn't even hard. I mean, <laughs> I, of course, I'm a very spiritual person, yeah. but that's, yeah. Okay, talk about Stephen Colbert. Well, okay, so... 
I love Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Stephen Colbert is the man with whom I start my day mm-hmm. every day. And he happens, as you will know if you watch this video that I made, he happens to bear a striking physical resemblance to Jim. But it's not even that. It's that he says all the things that Jim would have said if Jim were around, although mm. the election of Donald Trump would have killed him. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in 2016, two awful things happened to mm. me. And I kind of, they merged, mm-hmm. you know. I lost my husband and I got Donald Trump. And what I do about that almost every day is I, because I don't stay up necessarily for the Colbert monologue, I, I get up very early. I get up at 530 and I watch Colbert. And in fact, there happens to be an essay as of today on online mm-hmm. about this very phenomenon. I just wrote it about my love of Stephen Colbert, who I've never met right. and probably never will meet. But and it's a very it's a very pure love. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to steal him away from his wife. I just like to I like to see him. It's very comforting. Right. Well, we have rituals, right? And yeah. and if we lived two or three hundred years ago, those rituals would be somewhat confined. And he to also, a, you, know. you know, he remind. Actually, there is some spirituality yeah. in this. I I am not myself a churchgoer, mm-hmm. but I like it that he is. I, and I have this sense that there is a moral compass yep. there. And he reminds me, his presence on that Ed Sullivan stage reminds me that, that goodness endures mm. in some way. I mean, I, I will say, reading the book, you can see the way the election, the political climate impinged uh, on the end of Jim's life, on your time together, yeah. the way that it was eating away at him. The way Even the, the Supreme Court, that was his big worry. Yeah. He was a lawyer, and he understood what, what a Supreme Court uh, nomination meant. It was such a visceral blow to all, all. I mean, I got, as my staff will tell you, I got sick two days after the election yeah. with some respiratory virus, which I could not shake to yeah. save my life. Yeah. I mean, it went on for weeks and weeks. I never miss work. I, I was missing work. And it was all. I mean, I could I tell. call it a PTSD experience, yeah. you know, that the way it went down and the shock of it all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I feel now um, I need to be a hopeful person, mm-hmm. and and sometimes it really challenges me to be one. But but I am fundamentally I I thought Jim would live, mm-hmm. and I and I actually do not think Kavanaugh. I'll go on record as saying I think he's going to be defeated, and I just I believe in goodness. I actually, I'm me and Anne Frank. Look right. what happened to her. But I I believe in goodness. We're going to end uh, then with a John Prine song, uh, because why not? Because you love John Prine so much. Uh, Joyce Maynard has been with us. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Here's a wild and precious thing. It don't grow on old magnolias. Or only blossom in the spring. Know the glory of true love. It will last your whole life through Never will go out of fashion Always will look good on you You can climb the highest mountain Touch the moon and stars above But old faithful just a fountain Compared to the glory of true love
Long before I met you, darling Lord, I thought I had it all I could have my lunch in London And my dinner in St. Paul I got some friends in Albuquerque Where the governor calls me good You can give them all the goodwill For the glory of true love You can climb the highest mountain Touch the moon and stars above But old faithful's just a fountain Compared to the glory of true love Glory, 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 glory You can't never get enough Time alone will tell the story Of the glory of true love Of the glory of true love 